again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace. And we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And for 2022, uh, we said we want to be uh, rooted, we want to be resolved, we want to be resting in Christ. And part of how we do that is through preaching through God's Word um, each week as we gather. And if you've been with us for any period of time, you know that we've been in this book of Ecclesiastes actually since September. Uh, and so we've been in this series called Vapor, Finding Meaning Under the Sun. And we started it back in September. We took a break over Christmas because this book can be a bit angsty. And during Advent, right, like you don't want to, we don't want to get to Christmas like super, super jaded. But now we're in the dead of winter. And so it's a great time to continue and, and really, Lord willing, finish Ecclesiastes today. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And as you turn there, um, this is the end of a sermon that Solomon, a king, at the end of his life is preaching to the covenant people of God, and, and also I think personally preaching to his sons, grandsons, granddaughters, uh, and his family, wanting to leave a legacy. And the legacy that he wants to, to lead is this, is that as you go through your life, there will be so many things that are discouraging and disparaging, and as you get closer to death, you're going to wonder, what, what, was it all worth it? What does it all mean? And there can be a sense that life in this world is ultimately meaningless when we consider our fragility, when we consider how short our lives are. But his big thesis and the big hope he has for, for the hearers of this, and I, I pray for us as well, is that our focus would not be solely on what we can see. That our lives would not be completely defined by, in some sense, the fog that is around us. Right? The vapor, the mist. But that somehow, by the Holy Spirit, God's Word, that the light of the Creator of the Son would shine through that mist, through um, that, that vapor, through that fog, and give us a sense of, of life, a sense of perspective, that there's more to this world than we can see and know. And, and myself and my kids, we kind of experienced that, just a, a little bit, a small microcosm of that this morning. As we're getting ready to, to leave, like we kind of looked out from our house, and all we could see is fog. All we could see is, is that vapor, that, that mist, that, that thing that it has a thickness, but there's no, no substance to it. And we got in the car and we pulled away and, and, and as we crested the mountain uh, at Walmart, overlooking Marysville, right? Isn't that great? Walmart has the best view in town. But like we had broken out above the, the clouds. We had broken out above the mist and we could see the sound and we could see the mountains and we could see the sun. And it's like, oh, there's way more than just the gray road of Highway 9 in front of us. And, and we get these moments where we can see light where we can see a greater perspective. And then, right, we, we make that turn and we descended. We came back into Marysville. And, and I didn't mean that derogatorily. Um, we, we, we came back in, right? And, and, the, and the fog has settled back in. And, and we, we couldn't see anything but the fog in the road again. But if we have that image of understanding that there's more than the fog, more than the mist, more than the vapor, then it doesn't matter if you're in a valley that has fog and mist, because you know. There's more out there than 
and what we can see and what we can experience. And so that's a bit of the thesis, I think, of what Solomon's been trying to do this whole sermon. And he gets to chapter 12, and he really wants to kind of increase the urgency here a bit to say, hey, your purpose and meaning in life is going to be defined by the creator who made you. And so because you are a created being, because I am a created being, and that means every aspect of your life has purpose and meaning because you were made for a purpose. You were made to enjoy. You were made to experience. You were made to be in communion with other people and with the God who made you. And so the challenge we have is we live a lot of our lives in that fog and on that road. And we get to the end and we've forgotten the mountaintop and why we were made in the first place. And that leads us to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm going to break it up into three sections, starting in verses 1 through 8. We'll read about it, and we'll talk about it. It says this. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high and the terrors are in the way. The almond trees blossom. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home. The mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanities of vanities, vapor of vapors, says the preacher. All is vanity. If you're trying to, to close out a sermon with a, a sense of urgency, with a sense of, of maybe hope, with a sense of encouragement you're going to be kind of hard-pressed to find some of it in those verses, right? I mean, so much of the imagery doesn't even resonate with us because he's writing poetically to a context that would understand what he's talking about. But his charge at the beginning of verse 1 is, is one that is so essential for us. Remember your creator. You can apply that to also remember you are created. And that means, again, you have purpose. You have meaning. There's intentionality about the fact that you exist in this world. And you were made for communion and joy and purpose. And the reason he says, remember your creator, is not like, oh yeah, 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 I know there's a God. Anyway, I'm going to get back to work. He's saying, no, no, no. Actually live your life in light of the fact that there is a creator who made everything good, who made you, who knew the days of the lives that you were going to lead before you experienced any of them, who knew you from before the foundations of the world, who has promised you an eternity. And remember that in light of all things. And he says, do it quickly. There is the sense of urgency here, right? Remember also the creator in your days of youth. And we are such a youth-worshipping culture, right? That, that, that like youth is like rich, right? Who's rich? Anybody that has more than you, right? Who's young? Anyone younger than you. I will tell you, at no point up until the last, uh, you know, year did I think 41 was young. I was like, no, 
that is not, yeah, yeah. Somebody in their 20s is like, no, that's absurd, right? No, what he's saying and how he defines youth is actually the sense of vitality, meaning you are young, not if you're just getting started or, you know, not if, not, not if you know, you, you kind of you get 25 or 31. Young for Solomon and what he's describing is when you still have enough vitality that you wake up, you get out of bed, you leave the house, and you engage with the world around you. That is the definition that he was using for young, meaning you're still engaged in life. So congratulations, whether you're, you're you know, eight weeks old or whether you're 80 years old. If you showed up today, you are young by Solomon's definition. So we're glad you're here. We're glad to be a multi-generational church. If you're with us online, that's awesome too. Like at least you were, you know, well enough to swipe, right? To, to, get, it, to get it going. And so we're, we're glad that you're here. But what he's saying is that you need to remember your creator and that you should like have absolutely no delusions that somehow you can live an independent life. Independent from other people, sure. Independent from society, yeah, okay. But absolutely not independent from the creator who made you. He's like, quickly, while you have your vitality, remember that you're not independent or self-sufficient, but you are interdependent and fully dependent on God. And in doing so, that remembering is also a full commitment of your life to pledge allegiance to that creator. Solomon's hope, the hope of the Bible, the, the, the hope that for us today, right, is that our heart's affections and allegiance would be placed in the creator who made us. That that is where we would rest. That is where we'd find resolve. That is where we would be rooted in our lives and in our days. So he's saying, remember and be reminded that the most joy will be experienced when you're living the way the Creator has made. And this is after Solomon has spent 11 chapters breaking down, excuse me, all the other ways you could find meaning and purpose. All the other ways you can find pleasure, all the other ways you can find accomplishment, all the other ways you can seek wisdom, and as he's done all of that, it says all of them are actually, are worthy. Like, those are all good things. But they will fail to, as we just sang, to, to fully satisfy. Unless wisdom, pleasure, meaning, accomplishment, raising your families, starting your business, like, getting school, like, any of those things, none of that will satisfy unless they are desires that are subordinate underneath your desire to be in communion with the God and creator who made you. And so he says three ways or three times that you should remember. Um, verses one and two, he's saying, remember your creator before your discouragement. Remember your creator before your discouragement in verses one and two. This is where he talks about vitality, youth. We covered that, right? That, that there's going to be years when you have the pretense of youth, and there's going to be years where all pretense is gone. Where you're like, no, actually, I mean, I did show up, but I can't claim young anymore, Right? And you get to these times, and there's years that seem lighter or good, and there's others where he says there's years that seem evil. And the context of that word doesn't mean evil morally, like, hey, you were a really, really good kid, and then you went off the rails. No, he's saying there's, there's, lot, there's years that just, in general, seem better, and there's other years where there's discouragement, where there's, where there's distressing, um, where the years of, of light are kind of replaced with some years that are dark. And, and he says, if you don't know where your hope is found before those lights dim, right? He uses the imagery of an epic storm rolling in. If you don't remember your creator 
before the storm settles in, not like, okay, I can endure this storm. I'm sure I'll get better later. But when you know you're at the sunset of your life, and the storm's rolled in, and you're like, that storm's going to be the one that brings me down. And it might be short or it might be long. But, but, but that's, that's, that, that, after that storm is rain, not sunshine, not rainbows. And so he says, you better remember your creator before that storm comes in. Before years get so discouraging, so distressing, that it's really hard to find the, the joy and the life in them. But if you remember again that there's a creator, you're made with a purpose, and this isn't all there is, then there's opportunities for joy. There's opportunities for endurance. When instead, right, there's times where you think you can regroup and rebuild and, and look forward to better days, and then there's seasons that end and never return. Right? So if you, right, you finally graduate from school, whether you're high school or college or trade school or whatever, and you're like, my time being a full-time student's over. I can't go back and do that again. You were single and then get married, and you're like, my time of being single is over, right? You're, you're married and you have kids. My time of getting sleep is over, right? right? You, you know, whatever is, or you're like, oh, no, my kids are they're gone. They've, they've launched, Lord willing. But that season of me being their daily, like, discipler, trainer, you know, parent, right? That, that, that's gone. And that season's over. You finally retire, and you're like, I climbed the ladder, and now I'm at the end of the rung, and now it's done, and, and there's other people climbing up behind me, but, but my days of doing that are over. That's what he's talking about. Remember your creator before you get to the end of those seasons, otherwise you'll miss the joy and the purpose of each of those seasons. All right, we gotta, we gotta keep moving. If you fail to remember your creator, discouragement can lead to despair. Lord willing, I think a lot of us in this room have decades of, left, of years of vitality left, and so do not despair, but, but whether it's another year, another 10 years, another several decades, like have some joy, have some purpose in remembering that your creator has granted you life. That brings us to the second part, verses three through five, saying, remember your creator before your deterioration. After youth comes a time when physical trials are no longer setbacks, right? It's just, just the new normal. Like, oh, I guess that's just going to hurt from now and then forever. It's just not going not gonna to get better, right? We've, we've had the, the relative, right, when they're older and they, they've, they've fallen down and they've, they've gotten a new hip. But that new hip never replaced what the old hip did, right? It's just there's, there's some things that in our bodies that it, when that's over, that's over, and he uses this poetic imagery, because maybe you're like, what is he talking about? No, in verses three through five, he uses this poetic imagery about this grand house that, 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 that uh, a noble uh, man or woman's body is, is equated to a grand mansion that is then fallen into disrepair, moving into inevitable deterioration. He says, keep the keepers of the house. He's talking about your hands. Like, like your hands are going to begin to tremble. What God has given you to help you with provision, what God has, has given you to help guide you and help navigate the world, those things that you've relied on, they start to get shaky. They start to tremble. 
my, um, my grandfather uh, was in the Navy during World War II, and, and um, he just told me that, man, he just literally lived on coffee, lived on caffeine so much. And later in life, when, when I knew him in his, in his 70s and into to, to 80s, um, his hands would tremble all the time. And I'd see it like when he's scooping out ice cream. And, and I mean, I don't mean to mock, but man, one time was, was really famous in, in our household. Um, you guys know what, like Thanksgiving, right? You got the, the turkey shears. You know that some of them are like electric powered and they kind of go like this? His hands were shaky, and he thought it'd be a good idea to use the like electric turkey trimmer and just full on miss the turkey and went right into a jello mold and it just, I mean, destroyed the whole thing, right? Like, there's these moments where you're like, no, no, man, arthritis has started to set in. My hands are shaky. The, the keepers of the house are trembling, they're no longer reliable. He talks about strong men. He's talking about those are the legs and the shoulders, right? The muscle and bone formations that used to hold you up, used to help you puff your chest up a bit, used to help you have some steel in your spine, used to help you climb or whatever. And he's like, nope, now it's, it's bow-legged, shoulders are down, and I'm just barely making it. I'm moving, I'm shuffling. He's like, that's, that's happening. I love this one. Few, the grinders are few. Um, Grinders are, are the people who would grind out wheat. And so when he's saying the grinders are, are few, he's saying those who prepare food are few. What is he talking about? It's an allusion to teeth. He's like, you used to have a full mouth. And, 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 and they'd prepare your food for you. You chew the food and it, it's good for the rest of your system, right? He's like, no, but, but when there's the decay, he's like, you go from like a big old nice pearly white smile to like you're down to old chomper. And you got one good tooth, and you, may, you might be able to open a can with it, but that's, that's about it, right? And, and, and we, we know this, right? Like, like when, you, when you get older, right? Like, you, you spend time in a, a retirement home, and, and they, they're, they're not eating steak. What is it? Lunchtime, mushy peas, right? He's like, because that's all you can do. Because the grinders are few, that dim windows and shut doors, he's talking about our eyes and our ears, our ability to see and experience and engage with the outside world. The windows, are sh I, I don't see as well. You read through the Old Testament and you see these, these patriarchs handing off their birthrights to their kids and, and they're at a place, they're at their deathbed and they're so blind, they can't even tell who's there. And, and your, your ears deteriorate and maybe you're like, yeah, I can tell, Chris, you're shouting all the time. I think I'm whispering. Right? I mean, am I the only one who, maybe a couple years ago, like, you turn on the closed captioning if you're watching, like, a, a show that took place in Great Britain so you can understand what they were saying? And then now you're just like, no, I, I'm closed captioning for everything. You're like, Mandalorian, just so I can get the names right. You know, right? Like, I'm on closed caption all the time. Tara and I were watching a show the other day, and we realized, like, we had closed caption on, and the volume was loud enough that our kids, if they had come in, they would have been like, what happened to mom and dad? I mean, like, it, you know, thankfully, thankfully it wasn't like cable news, right? They'd just be like yelling at you, right? But that's the deterioration. He's like, remember your creator before you get to these places where you can no longer engage with life in the same way. He says, the voice of the daughters of song, that's, that, that's actually talking about your voice starts to tremble. The, the almond blossoms uh, come in. He's talking about your hair turning white. Almond blossoms are white. So he's saying, there's a day for you where you're going from like fine head of hair to no hair or white hair. Those are your two options. That's coming for everybody. 
And right, you know, the younger we are, the more we chuckle. The older we are, we're like, no, that's, it's about that time. Because it comes for all of us. He's saying, you better have remembered your creator before that, while you're young, before there's the deterioration. He says, desires and appetites that once seemed all-consuming, they used to give you drive and vigor and vitality, don't care about as much about the same things. I don't feel like remodeling my house. Things aren't as romantic as they used to. You know, whatever it is, right? Like the, that's what he's talking about. Desire, drive, lessening. He's saying death is near. Um, one of our first presidents, John Quincy Adams, um, flirted with Unitarianism for a while, just kind of like, ah, this, you know, all, all paths lead to God kind of sort of deal. And he ended with faith in Jesus Christ. And, and um, one of... Um, you know, one of his friends uh, or an associate was like, hey, you know, JQA, how you doing? Um, and, and he's like, so he sent him a letter. And I think maybe John Quincy Adams might have been reading Ecclesiastes when he wrote this on his 80th birthday to tell his friend how he was doing as he was turning 80. He said this, John Quincy Adams is well, but the house in which he lives at present is becoming dilapidated. It's tottering upon its foundation. Time and the seasons have nearly destroyed it. Its roof is pretty well worn out. Its walls are much shattered and it trembles with every wind. I think John Quincy will have to move out soon. But he himself is quite well. Quite well. How can he say that? His body, the house is falling apart. And he's like, well, I, I'm going to get to move out soon. Well, where's the hope in that? Where are you going, John? Well, this, I, think, I think he also looked you know, beyond Ecclesiastes, and he might have read this in 2 Corinthians 5.1. It's Paul talking about what happens when we die, and he says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, right? So, so Paul says, no, we, we're not a great building. Your body at best is a tent. He says, if that tent's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what God is saying to us, what the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us is when you die, when your body deteriorates and your soul leaves your body, you're present with the Father, you're in paradise, and ultimately our hope is in resurrection where we're not given a tent that will deteriorate or a, a, even a house that's built with human hands that will fall apart, but we we are given an eternal building that will last forever, that will hold up, that will never deteriorate, that will never fade, where there's no almond blossoms on the top. No more chomper. You get all the teeth in heaven. And that's when he says this, remember your creator before your death. Because that day is coming, verses 6 through 8. The imagery he's talking about here is when discouragement goes to deterioration. Finally, you're gonna, death will come for us all. And he just, he wants to urgently plea, orient your life around the truth of the creator before the finality of your fatality. That when that day comes, it's too late to remember your creator. The, the, he talks uh, 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 later in, in verse 14 about judgment. That there is a time of judgment. That is an incredibly unpopular thing to talk about in church. But I'll tell you, judgment's an incredibly popular thing to talk about in the world. You say the wrong thing. You tweet the wrong thing. You said something wrong 15 years ago. Judgment, gone. And our God says, no, no, yeah, I'm judging you way better than any scouring through your old social media feed. I know your thoughts. 
I know your heart. I know your actions. I know everything that you've done. And on that day of judgment, you better have some understanding of, of what your resume is and, and how you're going to actually go from, from tent to eternal dwelling as opposed to tent to eternal wilderness of God's wrath. Because those are the two destinations that are there. I hate to lay it out that clearly, but that's, those are the only two alternatives the Bible gives. And so he says that your life right now is, is like this valuable, precious like bowl hanging from a golden chain. He's like, in a moment, that chain's going to get snapped. That, that vessel that you've been using to get fresh water from the well, that's going to break and shatter, and there's no more living water in you. That's the imagery he's using, and he's like, I think this is a gracious call for him to say, remember, remember because of the final consequences. And what are the final consequences? It says this in verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth, and the spirit returns to God. He is hearkening back to the creation narrative. And so you can... You cannot like, you know, the idea that God created the world. You know, you could be, you know, theistic evolution, you know, wh whatever. Like, you can believe that we're all just, you know, apes. I, I, my call for you today is, is not to decide how the world began. My hope is for us to consider how our lives are going to end. And regardless of how you believe how humanity began, the, the, the Bible says, he, you know, God, he formed humanity out of the dust. We all agree, and none of us can deny that we all return to dust. Um, it, was, it was this month, uh, eight years ago, that my grandma died. And um, I'd just become uh, a, a lead pastor, getting to preach on a regular basis, and, and I was, ended up being gone for several weeks because of funerals and all that. And, and at the end of February, um, we took our ashes up to some property that our family owns at this lake in North Idaho. And it was like, you know, literally like four degrees that day, but the sun was out, and um, we put up this little cross, and there's flowers and all these things, and, and my dad and uncle scattered her ashes. And um, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was tough. It was challenging because you know, I was there with her on her, on her deathbed, and uh, as she passed, this, the last two words I said to her were, trust Jesus, and that's, that's why I finish every sermon now with trust Jesus, because that's the last thing I said to her. Because um, I don't know if she remembered her creator before this moment. We went back later that summer, and we hiked up to that same spot where we had scattered her ashes and, and there was no more evidence that she had ever been there. That's our trajectory. We all will return to dust. That's what Solomon's saying. That you're no longer going to have the ability to remember your creator after that time. And so he ends his sermon with this verse 8 Vanities of vanities. And he's not saying it's all meaningless. Here the context of ending his sermon is saying, the mist is here for a while. The fog is here for a while. But it's going to burn off. And when it does, you're going to be with your creator. So live life in light of that. And that's, if you're looking at Ecclesiastes, if you're reading it, that's, that's kind of the book and that's how the sermon portion ends. There's more verses here, and we'll, we'll talk about them here uh, in a moment, but that's, that's how it ends. He's just saying, hey, life is short, and, and we, we do need more than that. Like, I'm not, I mean, Solomon's a better writer than I am, but his, his sermon needs more than this. And so he, he, 
he goes into verses 9 through 12, and he, these are kind of like sermon notes. Where he's like, well, here's some ideas I was really kind of hoping to convey through this. So his last line, you know, minds trust Jesus, you know, his last line is vanity, uh, vanity's on this, and, and then he just kind of goes, you know, okay, well, let me explain what I was trying to do. So let's get into these verses, we'll keep going. 9 through 12 says this. Besides being wise, the preacher also, he's talking about himself, taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, of much study is a weariness of the flesh. And so Solomon here is trying to say, the, he's like, hey, I, I preached the sermon, I mic dropped it, and, and, and I walked out. And this is like Solomon doing like a, a, a post-game sermon press conference. Like, hey, what'd you, what'd you mean there in the fourth quarter um, when you threw out kind of that vanity of vanity? He's like, did that work well for you? And he's like, well, you know, we gave 110%. Um, you know, we just take it one sermon at a time. You know, he just kind of starts doing that business, right? No, here's what he's saying. Like, hey, what was the point of that whole sermon? He's like, well, I mean, I preached it for 11 chapters. I kind of hope you got the point. He's like, well, let me tell you what it is. The reason we study this book is to gain wisdom on how to live in the world that the Creator's made for us. He wants us to be able to navigate life under the sun in light of the fact there's a Creator who made the sun. That's what he's trying to say. And he says, hey, there's a way that you can get wisdom and knowledge that can puff you up. My hope was this would be wisdom and knowledge that would build you up. That it wouldn't just stay with you, but that we... Me, you, us, all, all of us, we become vessels of this good news and, and of this wisdom of, of, the, of life with God and that we would then give that and teach that to others. Solomon was a teacher. And he also says here that like, hey, you know, I, I arranged these words uh, the, the best I could. Um, you know, I, I wrote them uprightly and he's saying, hey, hey, I wanted to tell the truth about the world. But he says he, he kind of crafted it. And so he's like, uh, but I also wanted those truths to be beautiful. And, and, and I, I love that Solomon's breaking that down because I think there can be a real tension when we're trying to, to wrap our heads around what's true about the world, what's true about the gospel of Jesus Christ, heaven, hell, eternity, life now, all those things. And, and we, we dive ourselves into one ditch or the other. So some of us are really, really good at truth. And some of us are really, really good at beauty. But truth without beauty is ugly. And it's not attractive and it doesn't draw people to new life. Beauty without truth is fake and fleeting. You can have awesome platitudes that sound fantastic, but if there's not truth behind it, then it's not edifying. One is ugly, one is not edifying, neither of which will produce life. He's saying my hope, and our hope as we are people who are bringing this good news to others, is that we be people of truth and of beauty. And they get joined together in, in a way that is life-producing. And he says, so that the words then uh, of this wisdom is, is like a goad or nail. And so we don't use the term goad very often, but it's like a shepherd's crook, sort of. Like, like these words are to guide us when we're out of place, protect us when we're about to go over the edge. And he's like, these words are like nails that, that nail us into a firm foundation that doesn't move. So our lives are based on a foundation that doesn't change, and we're guided in ways that lead us to provision, to joy, and to life. That's what God's Word should do. 
And the reason I say God's word and not just Solomon's sermon is he says these words are uh, fixed, call these sayings, they are given by one shepherd. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about God, the good shepherd. He's talking about Jesus. And he's saying, I wrote these, but they were inspired and directed by that great shepherd who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death has also prepared a place for us for eternity. So he's saying, these aren't just my words, these are God's words. And so let's be people who aren't just true but unpleasant, because then you're, we're just being jerks. But let's not be pleasant and untrue and be a fraud, but let's be people who have a firm, rooted foundation and are guided by words of beauty and truth. They come from Jesus, who's our rock. Jesus, who is our shepherd. Living a life, remembering the creator, he said, isn't to just study for study's sake. Like, if, if at the end of this series, and maybe at the end of the sermon today, you're like, well, I know a little bit more about Ecclesiastes. But does it impact your life? If it doesn't, like, if you came in, you don't know Jesus, it doesn't change your eternity. If it doesn't help you endure in the present, then, then, then it is meaningless. But no, he's saying these are words that are to guide us and shape us and give us life. And then at a certain point, quit studying and go live your life. Like, yeah, do, you want a Bible in a year plan? Do it. You want to read some, you know, old dead guys? Great. You want to, you want to read some, some, you know, encouraging, you know, theologian? Awesome. Like, go for that. To study. But he's like, at a certain point, you got to quit studying and you have to go live life. Do so with the foundation of God's word, guided by God's word. And that leads us to the last verses in Ecclesiastes, where we kind of see that this sermon in, in chapter 12 here um, isn't a series finale like a show, but it's a season finale, and there's more seasons to come. It says this, verses, verses 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed to judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Um, that can't be the end. If your hope is that somehow when you get to the end of your days that you say, I remember my creator so well, I feared God, I kept his commandments, then you're going to be incredibly disappointed. And furthermore, I'll just tell you that your, your daily life will be incredibly exhausting if this is the end of the sermon for you. Because while this is true, we are made to be here and revere and worship God. We are made to keep his commands. He says this is the whole duty of man, meaning, meaning this applies to everyone is what he's saying. Everybody, whether they know it or believe it or not, is made for this purpose. But all of us have failed. None of us have done this perfectly. Because even if you like were like totally wayward, you came in today and you're like, okay, from this day on, you know, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm, I got more than half my life left. From this day on, I'm going to fear God and keep his commandments. And then when I get to the end, you're like, hey, my first 25 years weren't great, but my next 50 were. And so that way, you know, uh, outpaces this. I'm going to be okay. That's, that's, no, he says all deeds are judgment. All of your life is going to be weighed in the balance and found lacking. See, 
This is not a satisfying ending because all this does is lead us to religion. And that's why, that's why like when, when we read God's word, and particularly as Christians, when we're reading through the Old Testament, we can't just preach this sermon the way they would have preached it you know, in, in a synagogue a couple hundred years before Jesus. Fear God, keep his commandments, do, your, do your, everything well. We'll do a day of sacrifice at the end. We'll take some stuff to the temple, call it good. No, because we are Christians. And we live on the other side of Jesus Christ entering into history. And Jesus Christ, that one good shepherd, he shows up and he preaches. And he teaches. And his sermons go like this. Actually, it says this, Matthew 22, 27, one of Jesus' sermons. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you're like, whoa. That sounds a lot like fear God and keep his commandments. Okay, Jesus preached the same sermon, right? It, it, it's a very similar version to that. But we don't do it easily. We don't do it perfectly. So we need a shepherd to lead us out of the ditch of sin we found ourselves in and lead us to living water that is true and eternal. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm a preacher. I'm a teacher. But he's more than that. Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Who wrote the words? Who inspired the Bible through the Holy Spirit? Jesus. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And he goes on, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That this is what gets into the crux of the gospel. That yes, God created everything good. That there was a rejection in the garden where we failed to remember our creator, to keep his commandments. We walked in wilderness. We went through generations of sin and rebellion and repentance and faithlessness and doing it all over again. And Jesus, the good shepherd, shows up and says, I know you need more hope than fear God and keep his commandments. So I'm going to live a life of perfect obedience in your place. I'm going to fear God, and I'm going to keep his commandments. I'm going to keep his commandments all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where I say, not my will, but your will be done, God. I'm going to walk in obedience, guided by God's purpose, all the way to the cross where I'm going to be nailed. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, his life of obedience takes him to the cross, but the reason he goes to the cross is because of our resume of sin. Our resume of failing to remember the Creator. And so God and Jesus takes our resume and nails it to that cross. And says, that's where it is. Your life of sin, your failing to, to remember the Creator, your failure of obedience, all of that is nailed to the cross. And then he buries it. And he says, your old life is buried in that tomb like Jesus. And so he goes on to say this. John, rather, says this about Jesus' work on the cross. He says in 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a word that means absorbing the wrath of our sins. That Jesus was more than a good shepherd and a good teacher. He was our savior because he was our substitute for our sin. And so Ecclesiastes is a season finale where you're watching a show and you're like, 
I mean, it resolves some things, but that can't be the end. And it begs us to say, yep, next season, press play, let's go. And to keep seasons going and say, oh, I, ooh, wait, there's, somebody, there's another king that's come? A greater king than Solomon? Is this king Jesus? Well, he's not rich, he's poor. Oh, wow, the wisdom of God was for him to be brought low and to walk in obedience? That's wisdom? Man, that first king pursued pleasure. Another king before that wrote that at God's right hand is pleasures forevermore. Then we read later, oh wait, that God, King Jesus, he's at the right hand of the Father. The ultimate pleasure, ultimate purpose, ultimate life, ultimate joy is going to be found in one place and one place only, and that's Jesus? Oh, I like this show. I like this show because this is a good hero. Because when I see myself in the show, I see myself as the guy who's failing. Oh man, I, I need, I need this hero. You need this hero. We need this hero. We need a Jesus who secures our joy. Not because we've been perfect at pursuing him, but because he pursued us. So when we remember the character of our creator and we see the way that he has pursued us, our response in that is to receive new life. To have hope that my resume of sin has been nailed to the cross. Like when we're going to take communion here in a minute, and when we do, we're remembering his body broken for us in the bread, his blood shed for us on the cross in the cup, and we're remembering my resume of sin has been nailed to the cross. My life rejecting the Creator, that's dead and buried. But we aren't just cross people. We're empty tomb people. And so we have joy because in the resurrection of Jesus is the promise that we can and should and in some parts will walk out a life of obedience and loving the Creator. The order matters. You don't get saved because you've obeyed the Creator and remembered Him and kept His commandments. No, you've been saved by the Creator through the work of Jesus Christ in your place. And out of that comes joy. Out of that comes a response of, yes, reverence, but worship, rejoicing, and a new life walking out in obedience. Where we don't have to worry, if your life is in Christ, you don't have to worry when you die and your house crumbles and your chomper's gone. You don't have to worry that you're going to meet God as judge. But instead you get to meet Him even today, as the creator, and you don't say, oh, you're not cowering in fear, you're reporting for duty. God, what would you have for me? I know at your right hands are pleasure forevermore. I know eternity's with you. I know I've got a house forever. While I'm in this tent, in the days of my youth and vitality, whether that's eight months, eight years, or 80 years, God, what do you want for me? Who do you want me to serve? Who do you want me to share this treasure with? Where do you want me to take responsibility? What do you want me to plug in? What do you want me to encourage? God, you've given me this life. What do you have for me? Last verses, guys. I think this is what, what gives us hope now and forever. This is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 about what happens and how we live in light of it. And I think it's a great postscript for the end of Ecclesiastes. He says this in uh, verse um, uh, Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 54 through 58, he says this. 
And the perishable puts on the imperishable, right? When the house or the tent that's dilapidated gets the eternal. The mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Anything that we do in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ will not be a vapor and mist that disappears. It will be eternal. And so we can have hope for the life to come, endurance in the life now, and joy for the journey. We simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.